You're listening to Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark about accounting matters because accounting matters. On this episode, Adam and I sat down with Sam Sorensen, a senior director at Embark who has more than 13 years of experience in the accounting world. He recently helped a target company go through a SPAC transaction and prepare to comply with SEC reporting requirements, which is perfect because that's what we are talking about today. If you live in the accounting and finance world, then there is no doubt that you have heard the term SPAC thrown about recently. We are going to try to put boots on the ground and help our listeners understand what is required for an accounting team as they go through a SPAC transaction. If at the end of this episode, you'd still like to learn more about SPACs, then you can head over to our blog where we have an article called SPACs, What is a Special Purpose Acquisition Company? And we also have an article featured on Accounting Today called SPACs May Bring Accounting Risks. Also, since there's a lot of overlap between SPACs and IPOs, you can listen to our IPO podcast. And we also have resources for pre and post IPO on our blog as well. We hope you learn something new and find this conversation helpful. Enjoy. This is Sarah Cage, and I'm joined by my co-host, Adam Olson, Embark's National Quality Leader. And today we are also joined by Sam Sorensen, a senior director here at Embark, who has experience in today's topic, which is SPACs. We're going to cover as much as we can about the SPAC attack because we've had hundreds of IPOs through SPAC uh, in March alone. So we're going to cover this topic, which has a lot of complexity, but we're going to try and touch on the most important parts. So let's dive in with the most basic question. What is a SPAC? Yeah, so SPAC, you know, you know, is, you know, the abbreviated word for special purpose acquisition company. And it's basically, you know, a shell type company that, it, like you said, raises cash or capital um, through its IPO with the end goal of finding a target, which is generally a domestic private company, although occasionally there could also be a foreign private company, a target to acquire and merge with. You know, SPACs are, they're publicly traded entities, um, so they're getting outside investors and they are subject to ongoing like SEC reporting requirements, but that that's generally what they're there to do is really just to find a target and merge with that target. And is this like a rebranded blank check company? Blank check company kind of sounds a little more sketchy. SPAC sounds a little <laughs> bit, a little bit cleaner. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, they've been around for a while. Um, there's obviously a ton of buzz today. We're hearing more and more about it, but like the concept of a SPAC has been around since, you know, I think the, the early nineties, um, they had, you know, a recent renaissance just, you know, with lots of investors getting kind of amped up about it. And we're seeing celebrities getting behind SPACs nowadays. So that's, that garners more headline news around SPACs. But, you know, with the the financial crisis in the early 2000s, that really kind of put a damper on them. So they kind of went away. And now we're just seeing that resurgence come through. Um, and, you know, like you mentioned, there's been hundreds of SPAC IPOs, you know, just in 2021 alone. 2020 was a big year. And so will the trend continue? You know, time will tell. But it's, it's definitely um, something that investors have been excited about. And you mentioned celebrities, and I know that Shaq has a SPAC, and I think that that's just fun to say. <laughs> I'd like to be a part of Shaq's SPAC. Yes, yeah, easy branding for that <laughs> yeah. one, I think. Sam, this one's for you. Why might a private company explore a SPAC transaction instead of going through a traditional IPO? 
Yeah, so there's several reasons why. You know, one of them, probably the main reason is it's a lot faster than the traditional IPO, mm-hmm. um, where that could take, you know, six, seven, eight months. You know, these SPACs can go pretty quick. The upfront price, so that's set as part of the, the negotiated price before the transaction even closes, whereas in the traditional IPO, um, it's just driven based on the market at the time of the offering. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's the cost aspect. So with the traditional IPO, there's a lot of expense that goes into the roadshows, marketing to get, you know, to get the attention it needs. And then, uh, you know, the potential leadership that the that uh, would come through the SPAC. Um, so a lot of the sponsors of the SPAC, you know, they either have experience within that industry or financial experience that uh, would come into play after the, the companies merge together. Okay. And so why might an investor want to invest in a SPAC over another form of investing? Yeah, it's kind of in tandem with Sam's last point there. I mean, one is obviously access to seasoned veterans, financial leadership, you know, prominent investment bankers, PE guys that are, you know, that are essentially looking to source the deal. They're the ones that are negotiating, trying to find these targets. So they're buying into that expertise for sure. Um, You know, another incentive is when investors um, buy a share, or they're called units when the the SPAC IPOs. It it includes, you know, one share of common stock, but with that unit also comes um, a fractional warrant. So obviously the warrants are allow the investors to you know exercise those warrants and get additional shares of the of the target company once they're identified. But it's essentially an additional benefit to kind of um, reward them for locking up their capital while the while the SPAC searches for its target. Okay. And so we covered the advantages of going public through SPAC. What are some of the disadvantages of a SPAC? You know, there's always a lot of upside and downside to everything. So everything can't be as great as it sounds. Um, so there are definitely some disadvantages of why uh, why someone might not want to do a, a SPAC or not invest in a SPAC. Um, the first one relates to shareholder dilution. So what we mean by that is that Sam mentioned these sponsors, they form these SPACs, and then these SPACs go and IPO, bring in outside investors. Um, but as part of those sponsors forming the SPAC, they have these founder shares, which ultimately convert into 20% of the common share of the SPAC once it IPOs. And so that adds to some dilution there. Also, a lot of times the SPACs, in addition to the public warrants that they sell to investors, they also have private placement warrants, which can add to dilution. So there can be some shareholder dilution just in general. Also, you know, there's redemption concerns that can exist with SPACs. So basically what could happen is if a target is identified, shareholders may have the option to not really kind of go along with the deal, but maybe redeem their shares. And so, you know, the SPAC itself has to fund um, those redemptions. Um, And if they don't have enough funding to fund the redemptions as well as close the deal of acquiring the target, they may have to find additional financing somewhere, whether it's issuing preferred shares or taking on debt or something, you know, some combination there to to bridge the gap. Um, So that's another one. And then, you know, the last one I think is, you know, people are always like SPACs are faster way to IPO. And that's definitely true, Mm -hmm. but faster doesn't mean easier. And so um, (laughs) a lot of times, they're, the compressed timeline puts a lot of pressure on the target companies. So mm-hmm. there are these privately owned businesses that are now having to like 
kind of run amok, you know, fixing financials and getting just, you know, updated disclosures, getting re-audits done, all sorts of stuff in a very short time period. And mm-hmm. so a lot of the the stress there falls on those private companies. Yeah. Compressed makes me think, you know, probably a thousand hours of work that doesn't spread over multiple months is getting condensed. Sure. Can you give us a high level overview of how the SPAC process works? Like what are the key steps that they go through? You know, a lot of people refer to this as like the SPAC life cycle. So there's really kind of three key phases here. The first one is the SPAC formation, which we've touched on a little bit, which, you know, essentially is when the sponsor creates the SPAC entity. They put in a very small amount of capital to form the entity. Um, They get these, you know, small seed financial statement audits done. They file their S1s. You know, those get reviewed by the SEC when they're ready to go. Then the SPAC is going to, you know, initiate its IPO, which during the IPO, like I said, they get investors to come in and invest in the SPAC. You know, they're, you know, they're trying to excel their expertise. They may be experts in a specific industry looking for specific types of targets. So investors may be intrigued by that. Um, Those investors will get, you know, their units. So they get that share and that fractional warrant. You know, once that all happens, you know, then that target search starts next. But while that's happening, you know, the SPAC itself is is a public company. You know, they've filed their S1, they've issued their shares. Um, so they're subject to all the ongoing reporting requirements, you know, of the SEC. So they got to issue their 10Ks and their 10Qs and stuff like that. So um, there is compliance stuff that's going to happen as well once that SPAC is, you know, kind of going through that target search. Yeah. And, and the second step in that is, you know the the target company search. So so typically a SPAC will has a lifespan of eighteen to twenty four months, and that's start to finish. So identifying the target company all the way to completing the acquisition. So after they identify the target company, they're they're looking to execute a letter of intent, complete the due diligence, uh, negotiate the terms of the acquisition, and then and that includes like the governance structure, the organizational structure that they'll go through. And you know Adam had spoke earlier on disadvantages, right? So as part of that, they also have to may go through, uh, you know, finding additional funding as part of that acquisition, which includes, you know, redemption of common stock or, or additional debt. And so so once that all kind of plays out, then the merger agreement's finalized and then the, the SPAC company announces the transaction, files their 8K and, and they're moving forward right, right quickly. Okay, and then what's the, the next step? Is it they move into de-spacking they've yeah. been spacked and so now they unspack yeah so it's spack formation target search and then if it's you know a successful de-spack is when a target's been identified right so that's they've got that target they've got the agreement in place and so what they you know the spack will have to do next is get a shareholder approval for that merger to take place um, so they're going to solicit the shareholder vote for the merger usually this is accomplished through a filing a proxy statement um, or if there's going to be additional securities registered, they'll do this joint registration statement, which is like an S4 um, in lieu of their proxy. You know, the SEC staff will review the the proxy statement or the joint registration statement, you know, very similar to what they would do for, you know, a traditional IPO. So there could be comments and stuff that come on that that need to be addressed and worked out. Um, once that's all cleared, you know, the SPAC then goes and solicits the shareholders for the vote. They get approval on the merger. You know, once it's approved, you know, like Sam mentioned, they're going to have to file that that 8K, um, which, you know, 
basically requires within four business days for them to provide the historical financial statements and associated pro formas. Um, so if you think about that, it's, you know, that's a lot of work that has to be done. And so, you know, a lot of times as, you know, keeping in mind that timeline of when, you know, they get approval and they're going to have to file this 8K, there's a lot of like legwork that's already taking place with these target companies and shoring up those historical financial statements, preparing these pro formas so that literally it's all ready to go. Mm -hmm. And there's no time crunch trying to get this all pulled together because it would be, you know, impossible. Yeah, you said four uh, four days? <laughs> Four days, so yeah, that's yeah, they not, got, you can't do that. <laughs> they got to meet that filing requirement. You know, Sam mentioned also as part of the DSPAC, you know, not everyone kind of goes along with the deal. So there also can be some redemptions that take place for people that either don't like um, the target that was identified, don't want to continue to invest in that and want their capital back. So there can also be some redemptions as part of that DSPACing process. So it sounds like DSPACing the big bulk of the work and that's kind of the, the focus here and requires a lot of effort. Can you give a summary, Sam, of what requirements are necessary to get the merger of the SPAC with the business, uh, the target business or businesses, like how that despacking yeah. process actually works? So once, you know, the target's identified, they're, they're immediately starting all this, uh, you know, all this work, right? Mm -hmm. So they, they issue this proxy statement and they're basically doing that to get approval from the shareholders saying, mm -hmm. Yes, we agree to this business combination. They go through the details of the issuance of the securities. Um, they'll they'll elect the board of directors who they want to choose once the, the companies are merged, and then it'll go through the organizational governance structures of the company. But within that statement, there's a lot of you know additional work that goes into it, right? So there's mm -hmm. the financial financial statements of the SPAC and and the target company. Um, then the target company would also need to assess whether there was any you know, acquired entities or acquired companies during that time frame that they'll have to include in their financial statements. Um, there will be unaudited pro forma um, information of the proposed acquisition, so mm -hmm. what it would look like after um, the transaction. And then for both the SPAC and the target company, there's there's items in there, MDNA, risk factors, comparable, comparable financial information, um, that they'd have to include. So it's a lot of work in a c very compressed timeline that they're starting kind of once they've identified that target and start going down that road. I imagine a lot of our listeners are probably the target company and, and maybe they're the ones having to do this legwork. So Adam, could you walk us through some key accounting and reporting considerations they might need to think through? Yeah, I mean, some of the more complex issues that come up um, especially with the DSPAC transaction. You know, the first one is making sure we have the accounting acquirer correct. You know, and that's applying the, the business combination guidance and trying to understand that. Um, other issues are around identifying who should be the predecessor entity, you know, the SPAC or the target. Um, how many years of financial statements do we need to include? So the number of years there, what do those need to look like? Kind of form and content of those statements can also be a little complicated because you're, you know, historically, especially if you're applying private company alternatives under US GAAP, you know, having to think about unwinding some of that stuff and also complying with Regulation SX. Um, and then, you know, not just on the accounting front, but also from an audit perspective, you know, thinking through, you know, historically AICPA audits, what does that mean going mm -hmm. forward? How do we look at our exist our previous audit reports and what needs to be done, you know, change there? So those are just some highlights, I would say. 
Let's dive into each of those then. <laughs> Perfect. Let's uh, let's start with the first one: determining the accounting acquirer. Why that seems kind of like it would be obvious, but it never is. Yeah. <laughs> so why is that important? You know, it's an important judgment that has to be done. You know, determining who's the accounting acquirer. Obviously, in a SPAC merger transaction, can be a little convoluted because generally it's an exchange of equity interests, sometimes equity and cash. You know, it's usually pretty obvious if like someone acquires someone and just pays cash under 805, they've got control because they gave them all this money, got the business. Mm -hmm. Um, But in cases where equity is exchanged, um, it's important to evaluate, okay, who's really controlling the entity here? And so the guidance gives some like criteria to think through, you know, if if that's the case and what you need to like kind of look to if you're unsure about who's the accounting acquirer, um, which is important for SPACs because Ultimately, a SPAC does not want to be the accounting acquirer. You know, legally, they may be um, the acquirer per the agreement, but from an accounting perspective, they're expecting to be the acquiree and the target will be the accounting acquirer. Um, But to make that, you know, conclusion, you know, it's often looking at like, um, you know, the makeup of the company's post-combination. So, you know, looking at the relative size of the entities who kind of sits on the board and has, you know, kind of control of the board. What's the management team structure size? Um, you know, looking at the equity, you know, transferred in in the agreement itself and trying to understand the relative economics there. And so, you know, there's a bunch of judgmental factors. It's not a checklist, but it's usually like, you know, a technical memo that has to be put together um, basically to arrive at the conclusion that the target business is really kind of going to continue on and they're going to run the business and be in charge of the business. And it's not the SPAC itself. Um, if the SPAC was determined to be the accounting acquirer, I mean, it would be a traditional business combination. So, they would essentially have to apply purchase accounting to the target company's business, fair value everything, bring it on their books. And that's that's ultimately not what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, they're looking for what's called a reverse merger. And that's when, you know, the legal acquirer is the accounting acquiree. So the target is acquiring that SPAC. And so what happens there is because the SPAC itself is not really a company. They don't really do anything. They basically just have cash on their books and, you know, they're searching for a target and they're paying a couple expenses here and there. Um, From an accounting perspective, they're not considered a business usually. And so if the target is the acquirer and the SPAC's not a business, it's really just a recapitalization transaction. So it's like an, it's an equity event. So, um, you know, there's less accounting complexities there. This, you know, the target business doesn't have to fair value the SPAC and bring them on. It's really just kind of an equity fusion. Sounds like a lot, uh, like a ballet almost. <laughs> yeah. You got to be careful about where you're stepping. Yeah, it's, it's definitely, um, you know, like I, I said, there's a, there's a precedence here for like most of these transactions always result in a reverse merger. And that's, that's how they're structured. That's how the, you know, they've got governance, certain parameters in place to make sure that happens. It's really just kind of memoing that up and having those conclusions reach. So you can get your auditors happy that that, that makes sense. Right. Cause the last thing you'd want is to be trying to go through one of these <laughs> and realizing at the end, oh no, we've done something wrong. We, we ended up with a business combination. I believe the next thing you mentioned was the accounting predecessor. What should companies keep in mind with that? Yeah, so somebody's going to have to be deemed predecessor entity. Um, so, you know, whose historical financial statements are we going to present in the ongoing filings? And so in most cases where 
you know, the target becomes the accounting acquirer, they're going to be deemed the predecessor. So the historical periods are going to reflect the target in any's um, financial statements. Pretty simple there. So obviously creating financial statements is a big undertaking with any transaction, especially when the SEC is involved. So let's focus on the age of financial statements. Can you kind of walk us through the number of years required to be presented in the proxy and uh, joint registration statement? Yeah, so it's it's a little convoluted <laughs> again. What, what is it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so it's either going to be two or three years that are going to have to be presented for the target. And it's really going to depend on whether the SPAC, which is often an EGC, Emerging Growth Company, um, SEC designation under the JOBS Act, whether or not they've already filed their first 10K or not. Um, so if the SPAC has not filed it, they contemplate this merger, the merger happens, um, only two years of audited financial statements of the target are required. However, if the SPAC has already filed its you know, first 10K filing, then three years are gonna be required. So you're saying it just, it depends. It does. It always does. <laughs> Sam, what about the form and content of those financial statements? Yeah, good question, right? So a lot of these target companies are, are private companies. So um, they'll need to go back and make sure that the financial statements comply with, you know, the regulation SX and then the U.S. gap requirements for public companies. Um, so that can be a lot of work for them. In addition to that, right, if the private company has you know, elected, you know, alternative accounting um, for private companies like amortization of goodwill. Mm -hmm. They're going to have to go unwind that accounting and then revise their financial statements um, so that they can be included in the proxy or, or the joint statement. So there can be a lot of work there. In addition to that, right, they're going to have to then um, think about things like uh, segment reporting and EPS to include. And then there's, you know, there's a lot of other items that they'd have to consider for redeemable preferred stock, um, things within equity that they'll have to consider. But most commonly, you know, they, they'll need to go in and really consider the, you know, the criteria under Regulation SX that, you know, are they going to have to break out different revenue lines on the financial statements? Mm -hmm. um, disclosures for income tax, um, tax rate reconciliations, uh, identifying related parties. So there's a lot of, of, of things they'll have to think through and look at of, of uh, what they would need to include in addition to you know, what they've already included. They'll have to go back and really just kind of beef up their, their financial statements essentially. Yeah, and speaking of the standards for public companies, what about new accounting standards kind of coming down the pipeline? How does that affect the target companies and their need to adopt those with those different adoption dates? Yeah, so this is one that Right, always probably caused a little panic for that private company because they're like, "What does this mean for me now?" Like I was thought I had all this time, or you know, this wasn't something I was looking at necessarily right away. Um, so, generally, um, you know, a company that merges with a SPAC that isn't considered an emerging growth company would have to apply accounting standards in line with public business entities. However, if the SPAC itself is an emerging growth company, the target itself would be an emerging growth company if it conducted its own IPO. Um, and the combined entity, which is going to be an emerging growth company, if both of those are in most cases, um, is an emerging growth company, then they can adopt you know, any new accounting standards in line with 
private companies so long as they maintain that emerging growth company status. And so, like, you know, there's there's specific parameters of what who qualifies as an emerging growth company. It really comes down to like total revenues. It's, you know, roughly around a billion dollars currently. It's like 1.07 billion. And then it has to do with, you know, how much debt they have issued and outstanding, you know, if it's over a certain parameter there. So those are metrics that get looked at and have to be reevaluated. Um, but so long as they can meet that criteria, they can stay in an emerging growth company up to five years. Um, and one of the, you know, kind of like benefits of being an emerging growth company is, you know, not having to do kind of the accelerated adoption of these of these standards that public companies had to do. So, you know, revenue recognition, you know, they could adopt that technically in 2020 with the deferral we got last year. Leases would be a 2022 event. Um, CECL would be 2023. So those are kind of the big three that people think about. Um, but any others as well that would be already effective that aren't for private companies, they would be able to defer. Okay. And so continuing with that same idea of gap and financial statements, can you talk us through the audit considerations that come into play as they're going through this de-spacking process? That's such a fun way to say (laughs) (laughs) de-spacking. Yeah. Um, So, you know, one of the, the big things here, especially if the if the target company right is the accounting acquirer, they're ones that are filing their financial statements, the historical financial statements, you know, the predecessors are the target company's financial statements. Um, oftentimes that's going to require kind of a re-audit because um, historically private companies, you know, had their their financial statements audited under AICPA standards. And obviously as a public company, they have to comply with um, you know, PCAOB standards. So auditors are having to come in and do a lot of incremental audit procedures and um, testing and, you, you know, they're looking at the additional disclosures and things like that that need to go into the financial statements themselves um, and, you know, audit those in order to reissue their their audit report under those standards. So that's something they'll have to do. Um, you know, another item we mentioned at the, the top of the discussion was around any potential acqu- significant acquired entities under Rule 305. Um, so if the target company also had any acquired businesses in the, in the reflected periods that needed to have separate financial statements filed, those could be AICPA um, issued audit reports on those financial statements uh, because they aren't, they aren't the reporting entity itself. So there is, you know, relief there depending on if that's, if that's something that companies have to deal with. But, um, you know, there, there are, you know, the PCOB standards a little bit different, you know, there's different independent standards that auditors have to apply. There's different rules around affiliates and stuff like that. So, um, it could potentially cause some issues, um, particularly if they had an auditor that may have done some services that were permissible under AICPA standards and now are no longer under kind of PCOB SEC regulations. Um, that could warrant needing a change in auditor. Um, so just some things to think through for sure. And Sam, once they have completed their de-spacking, what happens next for the combined target company and the SPAC? Yeah, you know, you would think that after the merger transaction was finished and they were one company, they'd be able to take a breath and, and kind of get their feet under them. But really right after that, they're, you know, they're mandated to comply with the requirements of the SEC. So they're filing 8Ks, they're issuing 10Qs and 10Ks. So, and then, and then there's a lot of stuff that comes after that. Um, 
with socks and everything. So it really doesn't stop once the transaction is completed. It, they're just right into, you know, a, a different cadence of, of timing. And you mentioned socks, which is a huge part of becoming a public company. What should companies keep in mind here? And when do they need to start complying with those 404 rules under SOX? We can kind of split it up into like the 404A and the 404B requirements. So 404A is like the management kind of representation around the internal controls. So this one kind of depends. Um, you know, it kind of goes back to whether or not that SPAC prior to the merger had already filed its first 10K. If it had filed its first 10K, then you know, it's already kind of on the clock that it has to do, you know, an annual, you know, 404A certification of management's, you know, assessment of internal controls. And that's because the, the rule itself basically states you have to comply with that in your second annual filing, so your second 10K. And since the SPAC's already done one, once they merge together, they're already on the clock. They consider that prior 10K filing as year one. And so now year two is going to be with this, you know, ongoing target company being the public company going forward, they're going to have to comply in that first year. Um, on the 404B front, um, you know, we talked about the emerging growth company kind of qualification there. Um, you know, so long as the, uh, the company meets that like criteria to be an emerging growth company, they'll be able to defer the need to have like an auditor, you know, issue a report on their internal controls over financial reporting for up to five years, you know, so long as they keep that status. But that being said, you know, obviously they're going to be putting controls in place, getting that all shored up to comply with ongoing, you know, SOX regulations and testing and things of that nature. So, um, you know, a lot of companies will have that kind of underway, even, you know, as they're preparing to do the DSPAC, they may already be thinking about that type of stuff and trying to bring in outside help, you know, to help implement new processes, look at, you know, control gaps where they may, may need to do different things or shore up existing, you know, controls um, and reevaluate what, what all needs to be done in order to make sure they're squared away. That's a lot to consider. Do you all have any final thoughts just based off your experience working with SPACs? I mean, you know, I think it's a lot for a private company to take in. It's mm -hmm. a compressed timeline. There's a lot of work to be done. Frankly, there's a lot of private companies who don't have this experience. So it's yeah. important for them to, to loop in the right people uh, to get help where it's needed uh, if they want to be successful. Yeah, and I would just say, like, um, you know, there's there's been some murmuring around SPACs, I would say, you know, recently just with the SEC weighing in, you know, they've been warning investors about making sure they know what they're investing in. And so there's been a lot of like eyes looking at SPACs, I think just given all the volume of IPOs mm -hmm. and buzz around it, just whether there needs to be more regulation. So there's, there is a risk of, you know, there could just be stuff coming down the pipe that um, could impact how SPACs are handled or some of the requirements of um, transacting with SPACs and things like that. So there are a lot of eyes on that. And, you know, some investors may be weary about wanting to invest in SPACs. And, you know, some investment managers may be weary about trying to start new SPACs because they can't find the investor pool to mm -hmm. fund them. But, you know, all that being said, especially for target companies that are really hoping on a SPAC you know, come find them and <laughs> and take them <laughs> yeah. public. There are a ton of SPACs that have already been formed and have billions and billions of dollars locked up in these trust accounts that they hold the cash in while mm -hmm. they're searching. And so, 
you know, those SPACs are are still looking for targets. So there are going to be a lot of transactions, DSPACs, you know, coming coming in the next 12, 18 months, whatever, um, as those entities search and close on deals, hopefully, in order to, you know, bring those target target private companies to the public space. Yeah, well, I think the SPAC is here to stay. You could say the SPAC is back. But uh, there's so much more we could cover on this topic. They're such an interesting vehicle to IPO through and... Um, If you would like to learn more, we encourage you to check out our blog. Thank you for listening. We hope you found this discussion helpful. And Sam, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. And we hope to have you again on another episode of Accounting Matters. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series. And it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.